Thank you all so much. It's good to see you today for uh, worship, and uh, we're going to continue our series today on uh, biblical principles for the ride of a lifetime, talking about uh, parenting. I've entitled the message today, uh, Temperature. I'm not talking about the uh, thermostat on the wall in your house, but I am talking about the temperature in the house. Father, bless us now as we turn to your word for living here now in the rough and tumble, and yet also the joyous times of this life as we live faithfully looking for that glorious day when our risen Savior shall return. Help us live, Lord, uh, in light of the end as we seek to be faithful to you in time. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone was sharing with me some time ago about their childhood. Their story was not unique. I had heard Uh, similar stories to it before, but it evoked in me, when I hear these stories, feelings of great uh, sympathy. Uh, They said growing up in their home was, and these were my words, not theirs, but they said it was like walking on eggshells. And how they described it was like this. They said that um, growing up in my home, we never knew what to expect on a given day with my dad. If we came home and he was there, my mom would go in the house first to sort of uh, gauge the temperature, see where he was on that particular day. And um, they said alcohol was often involved, and so when he was drinking, he might be sullen or angry, he might lash out. If he was sober, he was not usually violent, but he might still be impatient. He seemed to have a lot of anger that he nursed in his life. And this person said, in essence, you just never knew what a day might bring with my dad. He was a good provider physically, but he really didn't have it together in that which was most vital in the life of raising the child. What they described was an experience that for them took away the wonder of childhood, and they had carried that with them into their adult years, and they were continuing to deal with the fallout. They loved their father, but he had failed to be what he should have been in his attitude and disposition. As we do continue today in this series, uh, Biblical Principles for the Right of a Lifetime, I want today again to deal with preliminaries as we did last week. Dealing with us, first of all, the parents, before we talk about dealing with the kids, the children. Again, as one writer put it, what gets in the way most in our parenting is us. And so before we get to the particular issues which we'll touch upon in this series. Again, I want to talk about a couple of preliminaries, and I want you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6 and then Colossians chapter 3. And I simply want to read uh, a verse out of each of these that pretty much parallel one another, a little bit of difference in Ephesians we'll, we'll be focusing today, where Paul is talking about us. And he says in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And then Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now last week as we began this series, we noted that parenting to a great degree mirrors the process of discipleship. And the basic qualifying factor in discipleship is that you cannot give away what you do not possess. That is, biblical parenting begins with knowing for sure that we as parents have experienced the new birth, that we have a living, vital relationship with Jesus. 
And that we know that we're being discipled ourselves by Him. We're still in the process of growing and being changed and discipled uh, by the Lord. Beyond that, however, we're also ambassadors of God to our children. That means we represent Him to our children. And so as we grow in the Lord, the character of God needs to be mirrored in our lives. Now, we will never do that perfectly because we're not God. And that even when we fail in that, it's still a great time to teach our families in the area of mercy, which we'll talk about in this message, how God helps us as we handle our failures. But we must have that understanding going in that I know Christ, I'm a person who's walking with Him, I'm being discipled by Him, I'm prepared foundationally to represent God because I know God. And I've met Him, my life has been changed by Him. Now, these two passages or verses that we read today, and um, he begins here by saying fathers, but it's inclusive. He's particularly addressing fathers because maybe they deal with some dispositional issues sometimes that are different, but this is an inclusive type of understanding, fathers and mothers, parents. He says as we parent, we have to pay attention to our own dispositions. The words that he uses here point back to something about us. There's something about us revealed in our method or in just how we are that provokes or pushes the children in the wrong direction. And so this means we have some personal spiritual work to do that is perpetual if we're going to seek to parent in the right direction. We need to um, confirm that uh, we ourselves are relating to them like we're relating uh, like the Lord to them. That, that is, the Lord is the one Father over all of us, Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 6, and this kind of lays the background of what he's going to say to us. Ephesians 4, 6, he says, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, we must be working so that in ourselves, as we uh, are representing God, we conform ourselves to relating like the Lord. And the Lord always acts in this particular way toward us. The Lord never acts in a way toward us to embitter us, right, to frustrate us. That is not God's method in working with us in our lives. Now, as we said last week, while we cannot ultimately change a heart in conversion, and a lot of you last week seem to have found a lot of God's great grace in knowing that... Um, you must embrace the grace. If you have a prodigal, a child that's been raised, you may raise two in the same home and one went this way and one the other. You must embrace the grace of God in your life, the mercy of God in your life. We cannot change a heart. But what we're talking about today is that we can participate with the Holy Spirit in the process of His work by shining the right kind of light upon our children's minds and hearts, setting the right kind of example and being an instrument of His grace in representing the Lord to our children. So today, I want to ask you to consider incorporating three words into your vocabulary in parenting, and I want you to not only incorporate these words, but the disposition that goes along with these particular words, the characteristics that go along with these words in parenting either small children, teens, young adults, even wayward children, prodigals, even who are adults. It's never too late to change as we think about the heart of God toward us in relationship to how we are showing God to them. So three words I want to focus upon today as we think about temperature as we continue to work on ourselves. First of all is the word tenderness. You know, I think we often parent in the ways we were parented. And sometimes that is not healthy, sometimes it is. 
Growing up in the United States, particularly in my, my generation, I'm a baby boomer, and the generation preceding me, and it still goes on to this day, even though the culture has changed somewhat, we have experienced what has been characterized in parenting as uh, the Victorian approach. John Stott, a British writer, made me aware of this some years ago when he was quoting another British scholar, Sir John Catherwood, who said that the dominant father in the Victorian novels, quote, used his own authority for his own ends. This goes back to the 19th century, up through the 20th century till today. It was oppressive parenting, parenting by power, intimidation, harshness of tone, drill sergeant parenting, often a tone of anger, disappointment, heavy use of the law. You're going to do this because what? I said so, right? I know none of you have ever said that. (laughs) Well, Stott Science Heights is an example, uh, a novel by Edna Ferber titled Giant, to kind of get the picture, because often novels tell us a lot about the culture. And in Edna Ferber's novel, Giant, she tells a story about a Texan named Jordan Benedict. He owns a a two-and-a-half million-acre cattle ranch. And he is furious because his infant son, Jordy, age three, does not take to horses. So he would dress him up in cowboy regalia, set him up on a horse, and Jordy would cry to be taken down. And so Jordan, the very powerful man, owns the big ranch, successful. He gets very disgusted with Jordy. He says, quote, I rode before I could walk. Anybody ever said to your children, well, when I was a boy... I did this. He said that um, I rode before I could walk. And his wife Leslie responds, well, that was very cute, but that was you. This is another person. Maybe he doesn't like horses. (laughs) His father responds, he's a Benedict. And I'm going to make a horseman out of him if I have to tie him to do it. Finally, she retorted forcefully, you've been playing God so long, you think you run the world. Jordan said, I run the part of it that's mine. She said, he's not yours. He's yours and mine and not even ours. He's himself. But you see in that example, out of that Victorian novel, reflective of a lot of parenting that took place, there's a lot we can say about this interaction. Jordan was certainly playing a dictator, but he was not representing God. But he is reflecting sometimes the attitudes toward parenting that have been in our culture and sometimes bleed over even into what is called Christian parenting. That is, raising boys to be men, to be tough. It's sometimes seen in homes full of legalism, homes with unreasonable expectations, homes with people seeking to live vicariously through their kids. Go to a youth baseball game, and you will see some of this. But right here in Ephesians, Paul tells us that as believers in Jesus, People who have been transformed by God, who have a relationship with God, who to be mirroring the very heart of God in our homes. We are not to be like the culture around us in our parenting, and particularly not this type of culture. Our disposition as disciples of Jesus, representing God, should be centrally in our lives. One of the three words should be rooted in tenderness in our lives, both men and women. Now, turn back in that passage in Ephesians. I want you you to see something here. 
Ephesians 6, verse 4. And this is sometimes where our English translations, you know, fail to be able to gather the words together to uh, expressing the thought. The translators make decisions about how much they're going to include in fleshing out a particular word. You notice Paul says here to fathers in verse 4, and applies to both, he says, do not exasperate your children, do not frustrate them or embitter them in Colossians. But then he says, instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the second part of this verse, discipline and instruction, deal with process, which we will talk about in the coming weeks. But the first part of this deals with tone, with disposition. You'll notice the phrase here when he says, uh, bring them up. Do you see that in your Bible? I want you to underline that, and I want you to remember something. Paul's point with what I'm about to show you is that the Christian parent should be a person who is tender. They should have kindness at the center of their approach to, to parenting. The word translated, bring them up, is one word in the Greek. It is the word ektrepho. Can you say that word with me? Ektrepho. Ek is a preposition like ex, exit, out. The idea here is, is, has the idea of, uh, of, of nourishment. If you go to chapter 5, verse 29, he uses the same word to talk about the husband's care of his wife. And he talks about it in applying it to the relationship of our care for our bodies. He says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care, there's the idea, trepho, for their body, just as Christ does the church. So it's tied to this idea of how meticulously we nourish our own bodies. We're tender toward ourselves. We take care of ourselves in that way. But in relationship to bringing up children, it has another nuance to it. It has a nuance of tenderness. Theologian John Calvin reminds us that it relates to tone. He translated it this way, let them be fondly cherished. Deal gently with them. So this idea of bring them up, let them be fondly cherished. Deal gently uh, with them. William Henderson, another New Testament scholar, renders it, rear them tenderly. And so as we think about our parenting representing God, God's heart is one of tenderness toward us. And we need to think about how we're going to incorporate that in our lives. Now, this instruction to Christian fathers here would have stood in stark contrast to the culture of that day. Paul's writing this to Christians living in Ephesus, a large city in Asia Minor, which will be Turkey today. It's part of the Roman Empire. Roman culture dominates everything. And in Roman culture, the father exercised full authority over all the members of the family. He was the pater familius. Uh, those of you who've seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, you remember perhaps that phrase, the pater familius, uh, as uh, George Clooney talked about. And that was a very important concept in that culture, which meant that the father had the power to punish. He had the power to sell his children into slavery. He had the power even to kill his children without repercussion from the law. He had the power to expose a child. Say if a woman had a girl and he wanted a boy, he could take it and put it on the city wall and leave it there to exposure, to die, or to be taken by others and misused. The Bible here is telling us that Christian parents in that culture were not to live like that, and Christian parents today are to live so as not to exasperate or embitter, and that to a great degree is rooted in having the right tone, disposition, temperature in your own life. 
having that tenderness in the home, having a home that's brimming with kindness. Now, this point can be tied back to earlier instruction in this letter about our general Christian behavior. If you go back to chapter 4 and verse 31, here he is talking to us about um, our overall behavior. And he says in Ephesians 4 verse 31, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And here in the, uh, in the original where it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, it's, it's you get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. This is not simply something that we think about that as we raise our children, the disposition they're to have is to be ours in how we live out our lives. Put away from you is what he is saying. So the God of the Bible is one who is tender and kind. He is the Father who is above all. Therefore, he is our model in how we go about living our life. Paul goes on, and we'll come back to it in a bit, to tell us to, to imitate him. And Paul says of God in the book of Romans, even in relationship to our sin and our rebellion, remember first and foremost, we talked about the fact that we're going to be good parents in the biblical sense. We must have experienced new birth, right? We must have come to know the Lord. Well, you have to the, come to the point of knowing the Lord by realizing you're a sinner, right? And you needed to repent. You needed God's kindness and tenderness towards you. And the good news of the Bible is that before we're saved even, God is already working in kindness toward us, even if we're in absolute rebellion against him. Even if we are, as Paul says in Romans 1, certain people are God-haters, But I want you to notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 about how God works with us even when we are before we're saved. And so this should tell us how to work with our children before they're saved and after they're saved. In Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Paul says this, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness, do you see this? God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That is, it is God's kindness working toward us that's intended to lead us to Jesus, to repentance. And so if we're going to be ambassadors of this God, that must become one of the central points of the temperature of our homes. They must be rooted in tenderness. Now, there's probably not a parent in here who has parented for very long, me included, who does not have a horror story or two of where you've blown it in relationship to losing your cool, being unkind, being unreasonable. And that is where we need mercy in our own lives, which we'll come to in a bit. But even when we blow it, that should be the exception, not the rule. The pattern, the temperature of our relationship should be centrally that they sense in us the kindness and the tenderness of God toward them. And we cannot convey that if we are people who are generally angry or unkind, pointed, sharp. Let me give you a number of words here in case one of them applies. Prickly, condescending, belittling, shaming, comparison-oriented, rough, unreasonable, cold, distant, and detached, etc. That isn't love. Love is rooted in tenderness. Love is expressed in tenderness. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Before we move on, notice what he says. Ephesians 5.1, he's just told us about getting rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, be kind and compassionate 
that idea of tenderness. And then he said in verse 1 of chapter 5, follow God's example. In the Greek, it is the word mimetai, from which we get the word mimic. Mimic God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, tenderness, kindness, that should be part of the core temperature of our home. But then secondly, there's another word we need to incorporate into our vocabulary along with the characteristics that go along with it. And that is patience. Patience is another disposition that must be central in our parenting because it centrally represents what God is like in relationship to how he, uh, how he relates to us. The preacher got scared. He thought he'd left some notes. All right. So patience. I don't know if you've ever traced this word in relationship to God in the Bible or not. Patience is one clear characteristic of God. You remember in the book of Exodus where Moses said to God, please show me your what? Glory. Show me your glory. And God placed him in what that old hymn we used to sing in the what? The cleft of the rock. That, you know, the split in the rock so he couldn't see God in his radiance as he passed by. And God passed by and to see his glory... For Moses, he tells Moses what his glory is like. His glory is his character. And you recall in the book of Exodus, chapter 34 and verse 6, as God is passing by Moses, I want you to notice something here. He says, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate And gracious God, read that next phrase with me, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger, long-suffering, patient. And if you'll just trace that through your Bible, you'll find that over and over in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, you'll find the same phraseology over and over in the Word of God, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. I just put a smattering of them on the screen. I don't have time to go through and read them. That isn't all of them. But you can look them up. Go find it online this week and you can find the PowerPoints there. Where it talks over and over again about this God being slow to anger. Patient. That's how he relates to me, a sinner. And that's how he calls me to relate to the little sinners he's entrusted to me to raise. Now, when saying we're to be patient, seeking to be like God who is patient, this has nothing to do with whether or not we mete out discipline. Because he says bring them up in the nurture, what, in training, discipline. Hebrews talks about God disciplining us. We'll get to that. But again, this is dealing with us, with our disposition. And if we're going to parent as God would have us to, if we're going to represent God well to our children and to our grandchildren, then we must cultivate an attitude of patience. Now, patience is seen in self-control. 
Parenting can be hard and trying, can't it? Perhaps it's already been that way for you today. Perhaps as you pulled up in the parking lot, your patience was tried. Perhaps as you tried to get someone out of bed this morning to get ready for Sunday school, your patience was tried. And parenting will try us. Yet it is important that we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Patience. That's God living in us by His Spirit producing patience. Even in times of exercising discipline, we should seek to have a patient spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another British pastor, writer, who's with the Lord, but he produced what is uh, perhaps the best English commentary on Ephesians ever done. And he said in relationship to this idea, he says, when you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. Paul David Tripp, in his book on parenting, which is one of the best books I've ever read on parenting, and I'll be drawing upon parts of it in this series, and we will eventually have some in the bookstore. You can purchase them here. I hope this will be a book you get and put on your shelf. But he talks in uh, his work on parenting about what happened in his own life about losing patience. Happens to all of us, doesn't it? He said, I remember the night very well all day long. My son had been particularly resistant. Felt that he was doing everything he could to make my day difficult. He argued and resisted and then denied that he had been argumentative or resistant. My well-planned day had been interrupted again and again by him. It was one of those days where parenting feels like a 12-hour case study in futility. I grew more and more angry and resentful as the day went on, but I was unaware of it. Of course, he picked a fight with one of his siblings at the dinner table, turned supper into chaos. I couldn't wait for him to go to bed so I could have what was left of my day back. And just when I was finally getting deep into what I was trying all day to do, I heard him upstairs. He wasn't asleep. No, he was arguing with his brother about something that made no difference at all. I jumped up from my chair, marched upstairs, more driven by the built-up frustration of the day than I realized. I went into his room and without turning on the lights, let him have it. I angrily told him how he had trashed my day and that I wasn't going to have him trash my night. What I said to him was loud, accusatory, and personal. I let him know how much I did for him, how little he did for me. He lay in his bed and cried as I talked. I told him he better get to sleeping quickly or else, and I stomped out of the dark room in a huff. Then he went on to say this. As I walked down the hallways, I tried to justify my anger, but I couldn't. I tried to tell myself that he deserved what he got but I couldn't buy my own rationalization. I tried to reason that sometimes a tongue lashing does a kid good, but it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work was that God immediately began to use that horrible parenting moment to expose what was in my heart. What I was experiencing was the painful blessing of the Spirit of God's conviction. I tried to go back to my work, but I was distracted by the guilt I was feeling. It was no use. I stopped doing what I was doing, and as I did, feelings of defeat washed over me. I couldn't believe that I'd blown it again, and this time in such a hurtful way. I couldn't believe that I allowed myself to be controlled by what should never control me. 
I felt weak and unable. But as I felt those things, God was turning this very bad thing into a very good thing. That's what his mercy does. We learn that from the cross. God was letting me feel the shame, guilt, and pain of my outbursts, not as an act of condemnation, but as a gift of mercy. That is, in his own life, God was showing him he needed to change. The ultimate issue wasn't the kid who probably needed discipline of a sort, but the ultimate issue was that he was not under control of the Holy Spirit. He was angry, and he lost his patience with his kid. And so, if that's happened to you in your life, as it happened with me, allow the pain to teach you. Remember that lack of patience will shut them down. It will build walls. It will embitter. And the Scripture says, do not embitter them. So how can we cultivate patience in our lives? Well, let me give you a few things to think about. One, we can cultivate patience when we remember that our work in raising our children is a process. You do not have to build Rome in a day, nor will you. And every battle that you have in relationship to your children is not the end of the world. Sometimes we make mountains out of molehills. You ever done that in your life? Make a mountain out of a molehill. You lose your patience. And we allow those things to set the whole tone of our day, sometimes for the whole week. But do you remember what Paul said about his ministry in Thessalonica, which we started with last week because this is related to discipling? you remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10? He showed up in their city, and he's trying to disciple them. And he says, you're witnesses, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you. Notice there's that individual care we dealt with each of you. As a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You see the process? He's discipling them as a father. He's encouraging, one-on-one care, comforting, urging. That is a process of working with them. That's a great model for parenting. It's also the trait that a pastor is to follow. If I'm not ever following with you, I hope that you will rebuke me. I'm called a shepherd. That's what a pastor's to be. And if you'll recall, just uh, by virtue of the fact that um, we're at this point, and I'm thinking about this in the light of discipling, my calling is one of discipling. Often it's done in a larger setting like this, much more so than one-on-one. But that's what I'm trying to do. And Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he said, Preach the word to Timothy the pastor. Be prepared in season and out of season. So here are the process. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Great patience in our teaching and working with people in discipleship. And if you go back to chapter 2 of this same letter, he says in verses 24, Through uh, 26, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. You see, these same attitudes of discipling people go into our homes, of raising our children. Why, Why must we be kind? We're called to be kind because God is kind. Must be kind to everyone. Able to teach. Not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. Do you see that? 
in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. That's the tone. Patience can be maintained then when we remember this is a process of discipling the little sinners God has entrusted to us. Because we're sinners with whom he is patient. Patience can be cultivated as well through remembering that every action is not an act of rebellion or personal attack. You know, in parenting sometimes it feels like they're doing stuff just to rile me up. This is personal attack. One writer shared the story about, let's just say, your son leaves a royal mess in the kitchen. And you say to him, after all I do for you, and this is the way you leave the kitchen... He said, now examine the logic there. Is that uh, what he did personal or simply the result of the laziness and self-centeredness of sin that we'll still, we all still carry around with us? Do you really think that that morning he woke up and said to himself, at 7, 12 a.m., I'm going to drive my mom crazy. I know what I will do. I'll leave a big mess all over the kitchen. Yeah, that'll drive her crazy. <laughs> well, that isn't really what happened, is it? They don't usually think that way. But sometimes we take things personally and we lose patience with them. If we can remember that every act that a kid does is not rooted in rebellion, sometimes it's rooted in ignorance, rooted in the vestiges of sin in their life, the laziness that may be there. And so we can be patient with those things. And if we're going to incorporate these words then and dispositions into our parenting, then we're going to have to pay attention And give thought to what we're doing, being proactive rather than reactive. But it's worth it in particular to being tender-hearted and patient. Lloyd-Jones put it this way, quote, If parents but gave as much thought to the rearing of their children as they do to the rearing of animals and flowers, the situation would be different. So we have kindness, right? Tenderness, patience. Third and final word is mercy. Mercy. If we're going accurately to represent the Lord, we must cultivate mercy. Mercy is related to forgiveness, related to grace. It is a spirit of reconciliation and blessing. Now, I put several scriptures up there, but one, Micah 7:18, was our call to worship this morning. And you remember what Micah wrote in relationship to God in Micah 7 verse 18 he says that you do not stay angry forever but delight notice God delights do you see that God delights brings God great joy to show mercy do you delight do I delight in showing mercy mercy grows out of love to bring them up gently that word ektrepho tenderly as God deals with us and as we deal with them like him we must be merciful And again, I'm not talking here about the application of discipline. But I'm dealing with heart matters, our heart matters as parents. Our disposition, our tone, the temperature in our lives. It means having a home where there's a huge, large place for forgiveness. And Jesus is our great model here. You remember in the book of Hebrews, that wonderful passage that invites us to come to the Lord to find what we need in difficult times. In Hebrews chapter 4, the scripture says in verses 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy. You see that? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Now notice what this says. We come to him in great need. And Jesus' disposition toward us, it says that he empathizes with our weaknesses. He's walked this route as a human being. He empathizes with our weaknesses. And in doing that, he delights then to give us mercy in the midst of our failures. So mercy is found in that he has sympathy toward us in our weaknesses. This is weakness reflected when we sin and need forgiven, or weakness that just flows out of the human condition where we see through a glass darkly, where we're limited, where we're ignorant. And so we live in such a way with our children that we remember the Lord's mercy toward me, one who has been ignorant, one who needs mercy, one who needs his forgiveness, one who needs his empathy as I walk through this world myself. And if I can continue to remember that about me, and I live in that type of relationship with Jesus, it becomes much easier for me to write, share that with my children that he's entrusted to me. Rick Warren put it this way, God's mercy to us is the motivation for showing mercy to others. Remember, you will never be asked to forgive someone else more than God has forgiven you. So what does this look like in relationship to our parenting? Let me give you a few things and we'll close. Thinking about mercy. First of all, in dealing with our children and showing mercy, it means that we truly forgive them. Truly forgiving. That is, we forgive and we don't keep a record of wrongs. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13 where the Bible talks about what love is like? Love is patient, love is kind. And the NIV it says that love does not keep a record of wrongs. Let me ask you, how's your marriage going to go if every time you sin against her, she sins against you, and you rock wrong in, in life, next time it's a rocky place, and you say, well, let's bring this up. That's what happened six months ago. That's going to go well, isn't it? That's going to bond you together if you keep bringing it up. The same thing is true in relationship to our children. We must forgive. That means we don't keep a record of wrongs to throw it back up in their faces. And I want you to hear this very clearly. Our children should not have to earn their way back into our good graces. That's work. That is not showing mercy. That's law. And that is not love. Do you remember when Peter denied Jesus? Pretty serious offense against Jesus, right? In the throes of his trial and then his crucifixion, Peter denied at the arrest that, that I, I didn't even know him. And you remember at one point, Jesus, as he's walking by, he's under arrest, it says he looked straight at Peter. And the Bible says Peter went out and wept bitterly. He's broken. Jesus dies, buried, rises again appears to the disciples and we then find that wonderful passage in John 21 where he goes and finds Peter 
he goes to Peter, right? And he calls him to him, and he restores him. He shows him mercy. And that's the heart of Jesus toward all of us. And that is to be our heart toward them. Mercy means that I truly forgive them when they really mess up and do something wrong. Mercy also is done in such a way that I overlook ignorance and foolishness. You know, a lot of uh, things that our kids do as they grow up, they're ignorant and foolish. And we've been ignorant and foolish as well. That's why God gave them to us. They need us. But they need us with the right tone and temperature toward them in relationship to their ignorance and their forgiveness. And that's why we must cultivate tenderheartedness, patience, and show mercy when they do something that, in a sense, is wrong. Not necessarily morally wrong, but it is something that violates something that, that I don't like, something I don't prefer, something that inconveniences me. Benjamin West was a painter. He tells the story of how he became a painter. He said one day his mother went out leaving him in charge of his little sister Sally. I saw this on Facebook the other day where a little girl uh, painted her sister like a zebra. But, uh, but he said in his mother's absence he discovered some bottles of colored ink and he began to paint Sally's portrait. In doing so he made a considerable mess of things with ink blots everywhere and his mother came back. He messed up everything. And she saw the mess and she said nothing. And she picked up the piece of paper and saw the drawing. And she had two choices. She got angry at the mess, right? The ignorance of a kid, just being a kid. But here's what she did. She said, why, Benjamin, it's Sally. And she stooped over and she kissed him. And ever after that, Benjamin West used to say, he said, quote, my mother's kiss made me a painter. Encouragement did more than a rebuke could ever do. And so if we're going to show mercy where there's really sin, we've got to forgive. And don't keep a record of wrongs, really forgive. Where there's ignorance, we really have to exercise merciful patience and overlook a lot of stuff and laugh at it because it's foolish and ignorant. I'm sure God laughs at us too. Thirdly, be transparent as well when you need mercy. As someone has said, it does not take long for our children to find out that we're not perfect. We're big sinners. And when our kids see us confess and ask for forgiveness from them and the Lord, it will help them to be able to understand the heart of God and begin to do the same thing. I was not, uh, I raised with great parents and... Uh, but I don't ever remember my parents uh, confessing their sin to God in front of me. They prayed. I don't know if they had confessed his sin. But, you know, I think it's healthy when we blow it, particularly with them, that they hear us say, Lord, I need mercy. I blew it. Johnny did this and it was wrong, but, Lord, my heart wasn't right in how I handled this. And our children need to see us relating to the Lord in light of our own sin, calling upon Him for mercy so that they can learn the heart of God. And then celebrate and affirm what is right and good when they get it in relationship to turning from the wrong thing. 
Martin Luther said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's true, but beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he's done well. The idea is that when someone has sinned and we've forgiven them, or they've turned and done the right thing, we need to affirm them in that. We don't need to keep bringing up the offense again to them. Do you remember the story of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15 where he runs away, spends half of his father's estate? Do you remember that? And he came home. And the father pulled out his laundry list of saying, you spent your money on raucous living, prostitutes, you wasted everything that I gave to you, you've been a horrible mess. Is that what he did? No, he said, bring the what? Fatted calf, put a robe on him, shoes on his feet, a ring on his finger. Let's have a party. And you and I need to celebrate. That's what mercy is. When a person does the right thing. So temperature, mercy, patience, tenderness. Maybe you were raised with a wrong perception of God through parents who were harsh and unforgiving, who ruled by law and intimidation. And this has hindered you from coming to the Lord. Don't let it. He is not like that. He desires to save you, to be merciful. He is kind and he is patient. He is forgiving. And maybe today you need to give your life to this Jesus who is pictured like the father looking for the prodigal to come home and he celebrates. You'll give your life to Jesus if you're not a Christian. God will celebrate. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in that same passage in Luke that the angels in heaven rejoice. Even the angels celebrate when one sinner comes to God in repentance. A party will be thrown in your name. Your name will be on the banner over the table. And all of heaven will stop and give glory to God for your solitary life. We are parents need to pray for strength. Go to the Lord and trusted other believers in your church life, in your Christian community to admit your frailty. It's not easy. Please don't hear this sermon as a, a beat-me-up type of sermon. I don't intend it that way. None of this series is to be that way. If, we, if that's what you're getting out of this, then you've missed the point. That goes against the very heart of the message, right? The heart of God toward us, discipling us is he is kind, tender-hearted, patient, merciful. And if you feel like you failed, some story has been drummed up in your head as I've talked about this today, about where you haven't been patient, embrace the grace, as we said last week. Go to him for mercy and renewed strength. God's mercies are new every day. Get up and keep going. And begin your parenting day with these words we've talked about. And finally, for all of us, these things are applicable to us as we live in any sphere as Christians, right? Our temperature in the midst of political discussion, in our jobs, in our schools, wherever it may be, we're to mimic God, God who is tenderhearted and kind, patient, merciful. That's what we're called to be. Would you stand with me and pray as we come to a time of commitment today? As our instrumentalists come and Jerry comes to lead us, we're going to be singing in just a moment. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And I pray you'd respond as God so leads you. If he's leading you to make commitments in light of what we said today and your parenting, do so. If he's leading you to be a part of this fellowship by a transfer of your membership or baptism, maybe you've asked Christ in your life today and you need to take that next step. We invite you to come. Lord, thank you for the great gift of family, for our children. Lord, for what you teach us about you as we seek to 
minister to them. We thank you for always being, Lord, one who is kind and tenderhearted toward us, who understands our weaknesses. We thank you for your patience, your long-suffering, and, Lord, your great mercy. Help us, Lord, as we seek to become more like you. Forgive us when we fail you, and we thank you that you do, and thank you for strengthening us through your spirit, that you're eager to do these things. Thank you, Lord, for when we mess up, of picking us up and dusting us off as we do our children, hugging us and sending us on our way to try again. I pray you'd encourage every parent, every grandparent in this room today, knowing who you are, and Lord, that they'd seek to convey that to the ones you've entrusted to them. In Jesus' name.